This episode mentions sexual assault and may not be appropriate for all listeners. It was an emotional roller coaster. We found out that my rights had been violated. We found out that the secret plea agreement had been signed, you know, sealed and delivered right underneath my nose. Courtney Wilde had been waiting for months to get an update from the feds on their investigation into Epstein. Her lawyer, Brad Edwards, had to file a special motion to get a hearing in front of a federal judge. If you were there that day, you'd have seen the judge, the federal prosecutors, and Epstein's lawyers. The opposing lawyers all knew what was going on. But Edwards and Courtney were in the dark. So Judge, judge Mara says to me, hey, look, you filed this as an emergency motion because you were trying to stop something that you thought was about to happen. You basically had this gut feeling that the government is going to secretly work out a deal without telling your clients. What you just learned is, it already happened. So what do you want me to do about it? It was a fair question. Edwards hadn't even seen the infamous document yet, the non-prosecution agreement, that would protect Epstein and his potential co-conspirators from further prosecution. But Edwards saw an opportunity to undo what he believed was an injustice. He became convinced that the feds had violated a law recently signed by President George W. Bush, called the Crime Victims' Rights Act, or CVRA. One of the things it required was for prosecutors to confer with victims before they sign any kind of plea deal, or NPA. But those prosecutors had not consulted Courtney. So, she sued. Yeah, like before we sued Jeffrey or anything like that, we um, sued the government first. All I knew when we filed the papers is that I was so, I was confused. I didn't understand what was happening. In the last episode, you heard about what was going on behind the scenes. How U.S. Attorney Alexander Acosta and federal prosecutor Marie Villafania were in close contact with Epstein's defense team. How there was a back and forth between the federal government and Epstein's lawyers that shut the victims out of the process. I was sexually abused by Jeffrey Epstein, yes, but I was re-victimized by our government. The government definitely became, what, a co-conspirer in a way, like, and, and it allowed it and okayed it. We know all that now because of this suit that Edwards and Courtney filed. But getting that information wasn't easy, and they had no idea they were signing up for a 12-year legal battle. Part of the reason it's taken so long is because the stakes of the case were so high. Courtney's legal team wanted Epstein's sweetheart deal thrown out, which could mean he'd end up in federal prison. That his collaborators could too. If this happened, it would strengthen the law for victims, so they couldn't be cut out of future deals. It's a lot to have hanging over your head for more than a decade, and it took a toll on Courtney. Because for so long, I'm like, why am I doing this? Why am I, why am I speaking out about this? Well, like, at the end of the day, is it benefiting me? And for a long time, I don't feel like it really did. Courtney didn't come out of this fight unscathed. This week, we'll hear about her own journey through the criminal justice system and how it nearly broke her. But there's one thing everyone tells you about Courtney. She's a fighter. I have fought and I have fought just for my voice to be heard and for people to believe it. I've fought for this because I know that there's 50 other women that are just like me who feel the same way. And our voices deserve to be heard. 
I'm Tara Palmieri, host of Broken, Seeking Justice. I've been reporting alongside the victims of Jeffrey Epstein as they seek justice from the people who are still alive. Epstein's enablers weren't just his powerful friends, adult recruiters, and staff, but the U.S. justice system. Now his survivors who don't have money or connections are waging a war against the government in a battle to change how we, as a society, treat victims. This week, we see one of those victims fighting back. We see her trying to undo this injustice. And we look at Epstein's increasingly desperate fight to make it go away. The two years after Courtney learned of the Epstein deal were awful. She heard Epstein got a very light sentence, just 13 months in county jail. Most of it, not even in the facility. He was allowed to spend 12 hours per day, six days a week, in his office, where he reportedly continued to have improper sexual contact with young women. Then, he was free. Jeffrey slipped through the cracks in every way that he could, at every chance he got. She knew she had two other ways to force Epstein and the government to come clean about what happened to her the suit she filed against the federal government, saying that her rights as a victim had been violated, and a suit against Epstein in civil court. Courtney moved forward with both, and that's when the intimidation started. She says Epstein hired private investigators to follow her around and harass her. She worked at a bagel shop back then, and the PIs would come to her job and pressure her to give up her civil suit. One time, they boxed her in while she was getting gas and told her if she didn't halt the suit, bad things would happen to her. Courtney wasn't having it. You did something wrong and you need to be punished for it, period. At one point, Epstein actually offered to pay Courtney to drop the CVRA case against the government. She declined the offer. She wanted her day in court. She wanted the world to know what Epstein and his co-conspirators had done. Epstein, for his part, just wanted to shut Courtney up with money, with intimidation, with anything. It's easy to imagine Epstein's fury. He had gotten off easy twice, and now this young woman, whom he used to easily control, refused him? I just feel like everybody should pay a price. Everybody knew what was going on, and nobody said anything, I guess, because of his money. Finally, though, the intimidation tactics went too far. Epstein's goons weren't just hounding her, they were hounding other victims too. According to Edwards, one victim was actually granted a protective order when Epstein's investigators tried to run her off the road. Courtney was only 22, and she feared she'd spend the rest of her life in hiding, broke and alone. Epstein had unlimited resources and an unlimited number of horrible people who would do his bidding. So, on July 6, 2010, she decided to give up on one of her lawsuits. She went to court to accept a civil settlement. The whole experience was very hush-hush. 
it's like super confidential. And they say, okay, you know, once you sign this paper, basically this never happened, is what they tell me and the two other girls that got the settlement with me. So I remember feeling like, what? They're like, you can't write books about it. You can't say his name um, without being sued. This never happened. For all that Courtney suffered, her awful childhood, her years of sexual abuse, the shock of the government striking a secret deal with Epstein, it was this accepting a large sum of money from her abuser that finally broke her. And then I remember, like, once I got the money, I did not care about that money. I did not care. I had no respect for it. And I blew it, like, no tomorrow. Like, you know, I ultimately became addicted to drugs. And then Because that, of the money, you think? Because you had access oh, to money? Oh, for sure. For sure. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Courtney's settlement money gave her a new life, the kind of life she had only hoped for growing up in a trailer park. After the settlement, she bought a red Lexus and a four-bedroom house in Delray Beach for $275,000. It was a cream house with red shutters and a built-in pool, with spa, sun deck, and a tiki bar. She had the home she always dreamed of, and it was all in her name. But this new financial security came with a price. Like, okay, so I'm sexually abused, I'm molested for a, a good portion of my life. Now you give me this money and I don't talk about it anymore. And it was, that it was like a turning point of destruction is the only way I could, you know, uh, explain it. Courtney began popping pills to blur out her memories, smoking marijuana, getting drunk. She kept falling deeper and deeper into dark places. I just felt so alone. I had like this this hole inside of me from Jeffrey Epstein is the only way I can explain it. You know, I felt lied to, I felt cheated. I felt like justice was never served. And why not? Am I not, did this not happen to me? Am I not good enough? Like I just felt this hole. It was so traumatic for me, you know? And I just remember feeling, I remember I had this big house and then, you know, and just being like, Oh, like, just so over it, you know? She ended up in jail a few different times for shoplifting and driving erratically without a license and then providing police with a fake identity. Of course, Courtney didn't get her own wing in the county jail like Epstein with private security guards and 12-hour work release six days a week. She was treated like a regular criminal. There was no fancy lawyer paying her bond in cash, just a cold cement room with white tile walls, a hard bench for a bed, and an exposed toilet. Instead of a window, just a sliver of light coming through a slit in the wall. 
After her release, Courtney got pregnant and then married, very briefly. It was so tumultuous, they split up before the baby was born. She was in and out of rehab. She just kept getting in trouble. After a shoplifting arrest, Courtney was taken to the hospital. She delivered her baby shortly after, a little boy. She was newly out of rehab, excited to have her son and her sobriety, but it didn't last. Two months after I had him, I relapsed. And I think that just made it even worse for me because I felt like so bad I've always wanted to be a mother and I felt like I had failed at that. And I just felt so alone. And then Courtney spiraled even further. She was sentenced to three years in state prison. At the age of 28, some six years after she settled with Epstein, she became an inmate at Gadsden Correctional Institution. I was just so mad and angry, like, why is my perpetrator not in here with me? Like, I remember questioning everything, questioning myself completely. Did this happen to me? Am I a victim? She was now living in a Florida panhandle prison where some inmates had to trade sexual favors with guards for basic things like toilet paper. Comparing Courtney's sentence with Epstein's reveals what different places they held in society. With his vast wealth, Epstein was allowed to spend hours every day with whoever he invited to his office. Courtney was separated from her child and living full-time in one of the worst prisons in Florida. I think I, for a long time, I was just angry, and I had anger issues. I was just mad, you know, Um, and it just stems back from, like, self-worth and hating myself And, like, I remember some days just literally feeling like I wanted to die inside. The justice system had failed her. And now, correctional officers controlled her every movement. After getting in a few fights, Courtney was placed on suicide watch. She was totally alone, except for when correctional officers would come check on her every 30 minutes. But the scariest part about prison was getting to know herself. There was something about being put in a room with nothing and nobody, you know, where it was just like I had nothing. I had to look in the mirror. Okay, Courtney, who are you? Those three years were bad, really bad. Courtney spent a lot of time upset about all the things she was missing out on, being in prison. But she also started looking at what she had. And one of those things was a lawyer, Brad Edwards the person who helped her file her suit against the federal government. By this point, Edwards had known Courtney for a decade. He had seen her struggle with drug abuse, become a mother, and go to prison. He had been with her through pretty much everything. Well, me and Brad are super close, and um, we have a real crazy relationship because he has seen this whole thing, you know? When Edwards visited Courtney, she would tell him stories about prison, arguments she had, little dust-ups, His kids sent her letters, too. You know, I've always kept contact with him just because I've always been passionate about our case against the U.S. government for violating our victim rights because that's just crazy and needs to be dealt with. And I've always felt that way. They would talk sometimes about the case against the government, the suit arguing that the feds had violated the CVRA. But that seemed like such a lost cause. Mostly they just talked as friends. Brad's always just expressed he knows, you know, that I have a good heart and he knew that I struggled with addiction and stuff like that. Brad always came and seen me and kind of stood in my corner as well, like, hey, listen, you can get through this, but you got to start being an adult, you know, you got to start 
taking care of your child, just everything. And he's just completely stood in my corner. Courtney listened to Edward's legal advice. And then eventually she listened to his personal advice. Brad actually came and see me and he wrote me a letter and he gave it to me. And it was, um, he just took his attorney hat off. His letter made Courtney look past her anger and her isolation. He just expressed to me how he felt that he believed in me, but um, there was like, he just felt like these are the things that I've noticed you do. And I don't know, it was just a, it was a really, really nice letter and it touched me in a different way. And I remember when reading the letter, me being like, I have, like, I have to change. Like, this is not okay. This was a turning point for Courtney not just for her attitude or her sobriety or her life in prison. This is when she decided to fight. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Just like Courtney, Brad Edwards had not given up on the first suit that they had filed together, the one against the federal government. Edwards believed that he could prove the U.S. Attorney's Office had acted illegally when it signed the non-prosecution agreement with Epstein, without ever conferring with the victims. From the outset of the case, Courtney's legal team had requested copies of all communication between Epstein's attorneys and the government. They assumed it would just be a few emails. But when Epstein's lawyers got involved, they figured the exchanges must be damning. Epstein wasn't even a part of the case. They were suing the government, after all. But his legal team seemed intent that these documents never become public. This paperwork battle went on for years. But after tussling for half a decade, there was a major breakthrough. A federal court of appeals ruled in their favor, releasing the private emails and letters between the U.S. Attorney's Office and Epstein's defense team as evidence. That ruling is the reason we have access to all the emails and letters that tell the story of Epstein's sweetheart deal. All the correspondence you heard about in our last episode, it all comes from that document dump. Epstein was so desperate to appeal that decision, but he lost. Around this time, Epstein got fixated on shutting Edwards up. Epstein wasn't shy about making veiled threats. He would say, hey, I just want to let you know, if you keep prosecuting me the way that you are, somebody's going to get hurt. And sometimes they weren't so veiled. Understand, Brad, that I could put you and your family under surveillance 24 hours a day. And, uh, and, and, and I don't do that. And you're lucky you're not in New York. The people I work with in New York are even more ruthless. And then he would back off of it and say, but I'm going to continue being fair with you and I'm not going to use my resources against you, but I just want to let you know Don't underestimate my power. Epstein used the same harsh intimidation tactics with Edwards that he had used on Courtney. According to Edwards' book, 
Epstein hired private investigators to follow Edwards and his family around. Epstein also personally sued Edwards, claiming he was implicated in a former partner's Ponzi scheme. Yet, Edwards kept going. At one point, he had more than 10 cases against Epstein, his own and those on behalf of his victims. But getting anywhere with those cases often felt impossible. It seemed like the self-professed billionaire had bought everyone's silence. Then we'd depose his house staff, and they would all show up with lawyers that were paid for by Jeffrey Epstein to kind of tailor their testimony. We were thinking, how in the world do we get the truth? Because he controls everybody. Edward spent a lot of time thinking about who he could get to talk. Someone whose silence Epstein couldn't buy. He needed witnesses who could help him understand Epstein's life, his operation, who he surrounded himself with. Ideally, someone with an ego as big as Epstein's, who knew him well, but had no use for him. We started looking into who are his friends who would show up with lawyers not paid for by Jeffrey Epstein, people who might not be scared of him. And that's when Edwards thought of Donald Trump. Trump was one of those people on the list because Trump didn't seem like somebody who was scared of anybody either. So I thought, he's one of those people we should depose. President Trump and Jeffrey Epstein were friends from the late 1980s up until the early 2000s. That was the peak of Epstein's trafficking operation. Trump and Epstein swam in the same social circles in Palm Beach and the Upper East Side. They flew around on the same private jets to the same luxurious enclaves. Epstein was often a guest at Trump's private Palm Beach club, Mar-a-Lago. It was during this era that Trump's famous quip was reported, the one where he called Epstein, quote, a lot of fun to be with. It is even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do, and many of them are on the younger side. The two seem to have drifted apart in the early 2000s, not because of the younger girls, but, according to Trump, because of a real estate deal. The property in question was a waterfront estate in Palm Beach, the kind of place with its own tennis court, pool house, and carriage house. Epstein and Trump were in a heated contest for the property, but Trump won, scoring the property for just over $41 million. It was this rivalry that seemed to rupture their friendship. To Edwards, this made Trump seem like an appealing source on Epstein. So we served Donald Trump in his office, and I got a call that afternoon from his lawyer saying, look, you can depose uh, Mr. Trump, but you can also get on the phone with him whenever you want, and he'll talk to you, and he'll give you whatever information that you want. It can be an open dialogue so that you don't have to depose him. And uh, I said, how soon can we set this up? And he said, uh, well, what's your schedule like? Edwards said he talked to Trump within a day or two of serving the subpoena. I think our first conversation was probably 45 minutes of me asking him questions and him providing information. I think that was the only witness in the whole case ever to handle a subpoena that way. And how did, did he give you anything valuable? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he at least told us who Jeffrey Epstein was close with and who his friends were and where to where to look and told me more about how their relationship ended. He said he didn't know anything about the girls, right? Didn't know anything about the girls being underage. He said, look, Je- Jeffrey has always been somebody who was surrounded by uh, younger-aged women. Trump did tell Edwards a disturbing anecdote about some girls he'd seen lounging by Epstein's pool. 
He said, look, there was a time, though, that I was at his house in Palm Beach. I came over for a business meeting, and we were sitting at the table uh, out back, and there were girls by the pool. And from afar, he couldn't tell how old they were. But I asked Jeffrey, hey, who, who are they? And had Jeffrey said, oh, these are models that are visiting, it wouldn't have been alarming. But Jeffrey instead said, it's this program that I, I'm, I'm part of like a big brother, little sister program. And Donald Trump thought, okay, that that doesn't make any sense. This relationship's over. Trump was a rare case of a powerful person who was willing to take a call from an attorney from Florida, whom he's never met. But Ghislaine Maxwell was much harder to pin down. She was, of course, the perfect witness, given her access to Epstein and what he did from day to day. But she was elusive. Edwards had to hire private investigators who eventually tracked her down at a Clinton Global Initiative event in Manhattan. While she was speaking, kind of speaking to a, a crowd, they walked up as if they were fans and served her with subpoena. She was very angry. She, she yelled at him. She yelled at him how inappropriate it was. Uh, I don't know the exact words, but it was mainly that it was inappropriate and that they should be ashamed of themselves for serving her and that she was embarrassed. The day before the deposition... Maxwell's lawyer called to say that she wouldn't be able to make it. Her mother was sick in London, and she needed to leave the country immediately and would not be coming back. Edwards couldn't help but feel it was a ploy, but he had no proof. Until he happened to see a photograph in People magazine. Here she is. It's Ghislaine Maxwell. She's front row. She's right next to Chelsea Clinton as she's walking down the aisle. Maxwell had been a guest at Chelsea Clinton's wedding in New York. No sick mother in sight. That was a big, fat lie. I mean, I knew that it was a lie at the time, but now here it is. It's documented. It's just a a lie with impunity. Like, I'm leaving the country. I'm never coming back. And now just showing up at, at what had to be, like, the most famous wedding at the time. This didn't help Edward's attempts to depose Maxwell. He was never able to get her on the record talking about her time with Epstein. But he did eventually find one fascinating source. Epstein's bodyguard of five years, Igor Zinoviev. Large man, flat top. Looks like a bouncer at an already very rough bar. This bodyguard was a Russian mixed martial arts fighter. So he sits down and um, super imposing guy. And I have my notepad as I normally would. And he sits down and says, you're not taking any notes. Edwards wrote about this meeting in his book, The bodyguard told him he was hired because Epstein worried that one of the girl's fathers would kill him. And like Epstein's houseman, Juan Alessi, whom you met in the second episode, Zinoviev said that Epstein's life revolved around young women. He said that after Epstein got out of jail, he stopped rounding up high school girls and instead started targeting young models. He recalled the mental manipulation, how the girls were lured in with the promise of something else. Zinoviev wanted Edwards to understand just how frightening Epstein was. He told him, You don't know who you're messing with. And you need to be really careful. You are on Jeffrey's radar. And somebody that Jeffrey pays a lot of attention to, which is not good. You don't want to be on Jeffrey's radar. And I said, well, give me some examples. I mean, who am I messing with? And that's when he looked across the table and whispered three letters. C-I-A. He said, listen, when he was in jail, 
one of the first things that I had to do was go to Langley, to the CIA, and sit in these classes for a week with the CIA. I was the only private citizen there. At the end, the assistant director or director, I don't remember which, gave me a book with a handwritten note in it that I was told not to read and go deliver it to Jeffrey in jail. Everybody there knew who he was. He's an important person. And I said, is he in the CIA? He said, I, I don't know. Is he in some intelligence agency? He said, I don't know. I mean, Jeffrey kept that kind of stuff very close to the vest, but it was clear that he's protected. Brad left the meeting shocked at what he had heard. Zinoviev's story suggested that Epstein wasn't just a casual informant or useful witness, but someone U.S. intelligence was passing information to. Although it could have been a scare tactic, this warning rattled Edwards. He could fend off Epstein's mob tactics and legal attacks, but a larger conspiracy involving the highest levels of government? Well, that was something else entirely. I think I looked under my car to, to make sure it wasn't going to blow up or something. I mean, there, there were plenty of times like that. I think I spent the next month kind of backing into every parking space, checking around me. And my whole career, I was chasing bad guys. So there were a lot of other scary people. But it was at that moment that I realized, oh, wait, Jeffrey Epstein is more powerful and scary than any of them. To this day, we still have no idea what Epstein's actual deal was. Was he a spy? Was he just a blowhard who wanted people to think he was a spy? I can say that we, and countless other journalists, looked into this. And nobody, as far as I know, has found definitive proof that Epstein was treated differently because of pressure from the White House or U.S. intelligence. In any event, Epstein still flaunted his association with President Trump to warn Edwards to back off. In his final months as a free man, in what seemed like an act of desperation— Epstein told Edwards that Donald Trump was his friend and Attorney General Bill Barr would do his bidding. So he should just drop the CVRA case because it was a waste of time. He leans over the table and he says, uh, what are you looking to do with, with the CVRA case? Even if the non-prosecution agreement is invalidated, I'm never going to be prosecuted. You know Trump was my friend, my close friend. And you know Barr is his boy. So... I have a way out. You're just wasting time. And, and that was another, his last kind of show of power is, look who's in control now. Edwards didn't worry or suppress his worry about Epstein's powerful connections and the CIA. He plugged away. He felt that he could prove that the government had protected Epstein in a way that violated the law. If he could prove that, he hoped he could overturn the non-prosecution agreement and put Epstein and his collaborators behind bars for life. Edwards needed a strong Jane Doe to be the face of the battle for victims' rights. And he needed her in the courtroom, not in a prison. He wanted to send a strong signal to the judge that real people had been hurt by this deal. But his Jane Doe one, Courtney Wilde, was behind bars, just as the world was finally waking up to how pervasive sex crimes against women are. So when I was in prison, it was so crazy because I'd watch TV and I seen everything happening, like Harvey Weinstein. And I remember just sitting there and just knowing, like, in my gut, I felt it. I'm like, this is going to be a movement. Outside of those prison walls, men and women of all ranks of life were speaking out against their abusers, people who were able to get away with it for years 
because of a society that shamed victims for speaking out, were finally being held accountable. In the rehab, each month you had to do a presentation on something. So I did it on sexual abuse and the Me Too movement. When you're in prison, you get to watch the TV for a couple hours, but you really don't know what's going on. I was trying to like inform, like, listen, this is what's going on, and we could be a part of this, and we could, you know, support this. I just remember seeing all this happen and me knowing that with my case and with all the survivors, you know, victims that are Jeffrey Epstein's, that we could stand together and, you know, bring it to justice. Courtney chose the topic because it felt so important to her, and she was happy to find that it was something the women around her cared about, too. I was surprised how many encouraged me or was passionate about it, too, you know, and liked what I had to say. I was surprised that pretty much everybody in the room, like, you know, applauded and chimed in and was like, no, you know, that they were for it as well. Courtney got her fight back, and the timing couldn't have been better. On November 28, 2018, Julie K. Brown's first explosive report about Jeffrey Epstein and his sweetheart deal appeared in the Miami Herald. The series was newly relevant because of Alexander Acosta, the man who oversaw Epstein's non-prosecution agreement. He was now a member of Trump's cabinet. It forced the case into the public consciousness, and it introduced the public to Courtney and some of Epstein's other underage victims. Finally, a decade after the secret deal, the world agreed with the obvious point. A man who systematically abused countless girls should not get a sweetheart deal from the government. It was an outrage. For Courtney, the stories accomplished what she wanted to do with her own civil suit against Epstein. People finally found out what Epstein had done to her. And not just to her, to dozens and dozens of other girls. She was still in prison when Julie's series came out. But it wasn't long before she finished her sentence and emerged back into the world, hoping to put her life back together. I know it's going to sound crazy, but prison really did save my life. Four months later, on February 21st, 2019, Courtney's phone buzzed. It was Edwards. He had news. Words that Courtney had been waiting to hear for over a decade— since she began fighting Epstein as a lost, scared 20-year-old. Edwards read the whole ruling to Courtney, but the only thing that mattered were these simple words. There was a violation of the victim's rights under the CVRA. Courtney broke down in tears. She had been vindicated. The years of telling her story of abuse over and over again had been worth it. It was official. The government had violated the victim's rights when they signed the non-prosecution agreement in September 2007 without conferring with the victims. Their uphill battle to get this ruling had somehow worked. I definitely doubted if it was the right choice for a long time. It was weird because everybody's like, why keep fighting? Why? Why? How did you do this? And it was, 
I don't know if it's my higher power or my gut or what, but it was just like a little voice inside me that is just like, keep on going, just keep on doing this, keep on doing this. And I just followed it. And I'm not even sure why, because it was definitely lonely. Now they were supposed to talk to the government about a way for them to resolve the harm that had been done to Epstein's victims. In legal terms, they call this a remedy. So what is the remedy for when you're sexually abused by somebody for years and years? Like, how do you fix that? Or what do you do? And I feel like an apology would be a start. Courtney's team came up with a list of remedies they would suggest to the court. Her request for an apology was at the top of the list. But there were other suggestions, too. Like allowing Epstein's victims to face him in court and make a statement about how his abuse had hurt them. They requested to meet with current and former representatives of the U.S. Attorney's Office, including Alexander Acosta. They wanted to conduct a hearing where Acosta had to be present and to turn over documents and information that would illuminate how all of this happened to begin with. And there were other things that seemed like easy asks, like training members of the U.S. Attorney's Office on the CVRA. Courtney's biggest hope was that the judge would throw out the non-prosecution agreement but that was going to require yet more litigation. But some things were slowly changing in her favor. With Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking operation in the headlines daily, other prosecutors clamored to be the ones to send this smug financier back to prison. The Southern District of New York, known as one of the most powerful and aggressive prosecutor's offices in the country, quietly launched an investigation into Epstein too. Epstein was now an internationally known pedophile, it would be harder to bend the justice system to his will. He was genuinely worried that he would end up in federal prison if the judge threw out the plea deal as part of the remedy. In December 2018, he asked for a meeting with Edwards. He wanted to talk about the Crime Victims' Rights Act case. He was really scared about that because if I win on that and I prove that his deal's illegal and it gets invalidated, it exposes him to prosecution because he knows that's what should have happened the first time. They met at the Boca Raton Starbucks. Edwards immediately felt anxious. At the time, he was secretly working with the Southern District of New York to build a case against Epstein. And there was a scary conversation that we had where he said, hey, look, I don't like these FBI agents that are talking to the victims again. What's happening with that? Why is that happening? When he said that, I had this feeling like, man, does he know that there's an investigation going on? Edwards could tell Epstein was worried, maybe even more worried than he was. Edwards knew it was only a matter of time before Epstein realized the Southern District was working to charge him. There's hardly any investigation that can go on that he doesn't know about as it's going on. I mean, he had insiders everywhere. He would always know as soon as a prosecution was open. And so I was nervous that he was going to find out that I was that I was cooperating against him, and that would cause real harm for me. I mean, I had no doubt that if he found that out, he would try to kill me. For months, the agents worked to build a case that would prove between 2002 and 2005, Epstein was trafficking minors and sexually abusing them in New York and Florida. And then finally, on July 6, 2019, Epstein was dragged off his private jet and arrested at Teterboro Airport in New Jersey after returning from Paris. He was handcuffed and charged with sex trafficking. Courtney was elated. 
she was finally going to see Epstein handcuffed, dressed in an orange jumpsuit, and sent off to prison. When I got the phone call that he was arrested, I was just like, finally. Finally. But of course, Epstein didn't stay in jail. He was held in the Metropolitan Correctional Center in downtown Manhattan. The MCC is notorious for housing high-profile inmates like Bernie Madoff and Mexican drug lord El Chapo, who called it worse than Guantanamo Bay. This was not a county jail. Then, inexplicably, a month later, Epstein was found hanging in his jail cell. Death by suicide. Epstein's suicide was painful for Courtney and many of the other victims. He died, it seemed, on his own terms, not forced to face his accusers. And now his co-conspirators were likely off the hook. True justice had been so close and now slipped away. I'm like, is he dead? Are you guys serious? Like, and that was it. I literally felt that. I'm like, this guy's not dead. I bet you he's not. And then my attorney was like, Courtney, he's dead. Courtney felt like the government had wronged her again. Why couldn't they make sure that he lived? She knew what it was like in jail. She'd been on suicide watch. They checked on her every 30 minutes. And unlike her, Epstein was an extremely high-profile prisoner. So did you feel like the fact that he killed himself, he escaped justice? Yes, he definitely escaped justice over and over again. And then things got worse. Judge Mara, who ruled that the government had acted illegally, now ruled there was no way to overturn the non-prosecution agreement because Epstein died. It didn't seem right, Courtney thought. Some of the people Courtney says lured her to Epstein's and witnessed his abuse are protected by this agreement. How could they be protected by an agreement they didn't have anything to do with? An agreement with an admitted pedophile who is dead. How is that justice? No, she didn't care what the judge ruled. She would keep fighting. I just feel like for some reason, our government doesn't want to hold these people accountable. Nobody is being put in jail and held accountable for the crimes they've committed. There was one remedy that Courtney wanted so badly, one that she was robbed of because of Epstein's death. One of the remedies were him being in a courtroom and every one of us confront him. She wanted each victim to have the chance to stand up to Epstein in court, one by one. And even though Epstein was dead, one federal judge decided that was still a good idea. Shortly after Epstein's death, Judge Richard Berman in New York transformed a routine hearing into a historic moment. Normally, when someone awaiting a criminal trial dies, there's a quick, formal process in which the prosecutors withdraw their case. Judge Berman decided he would not let the process happen quickly, behind closed doors. He invited Epstein's victims to stand in court and explain what the man had done to them. It was a powerful, painful few hours. Sixteen women stood and described the many ways Epstein ruined their lives. It was amazing because I'm sitting there, and I've always known that there's a whole bunch of these girls, you know? But, like, seeing the face and feeling the flesh, you know, you're like, oh, my God, these people are not imaginary. This is not just a name. This is a real person. And then everybody would get up, and they're saying what I have been through. And it was just so powerful. I can't tell you, like, how united I felt with these women. Courtney knew then that she wasn't alone. She wasn't just a Jane Doe. She was a force, 
And through her decade of fighting a man who seemed invincible, she inspired others. Before everybody went to the courthouse, I was standing and I was making coffee in the hotel. And a girl was standing and making coffee as well. Well, she looked over at me and she just put her stuff down and she ran and she hugged me. And she was like, you know, I know who you are. And I just, at first I was kind of like, didn't know what to think. I just hugged her. And then she was like, thank you for being my voice when I couldn't find mine. She was fighting for all of the Jane Doe's to be taken seriously so that all of their voices would be heard. There is something inside of me that just kept pushing me to speak out. And I honestly can't tell you what it is or, you know, why I've done it because everybody has their own opinions. And I feel like I've been judged and um, looked down upon and stuff like that. But I just know there's something about when I've shared my story to other people and I see that they, they feel like, okay, they're not alone. And to know that you're not alone and that, you know, life does happen, but it can go up from here. The latest ruling on the Crime Victims' Rights Act case was not favorable for Courtney and the other survivors. Earlier this year, the appellate judges declined to undo the non-prosecution agreement. The ruling is the kind of legalistic decision that is frustrating. The argument is that the Crime Victims' Rights Act is triggered only when the government files charges or opens criminal proceedings. And since federal prosecutors never file charges against Epstein— There technically was never a federal case against Epstein, so the victims need not be notified. But it seems that Congress's intent here was for someone like Courtney to be informed if prosecutors were striking a deal with someone like Epstein. Congress apparently agrees. On October 17, 2019, Congresswoman Jackie Speier introduced a new bill to make it impossible for the federal government to do again what happened in this case. The bill would give judges the power to throw out plea deals that don't include meaningful consultation with victims. And it would impose penalties on prosecutors who fail to protect victims' rights. The bill has bipartisan support and a strong chance of passing. It's called the Courtney Wilde Crime Victims' Rights Reform Act. All my friends are like, Courtney, your name will carry on forever. I feel proud. I feel accomplished. Courtney Wilde's name will carry on forever if that bill is signed into law. She's not just a voice, she's a player now in a broader debate about victims' rights, about women's rights. In February, she was invited to the State of the Union address, where she sat next to Congresswoman Speer. Courtney was dressed in a fitted white pantsuit, standing alongside the dozens of Democratic congresswomen who wore their white suffragette suits to celebrate the 100th anniversary of a woman's right to vote. It was a beautiful moment. Her smile was wide. She glowed as she clapped alongside these powerful women in the great chamber of Congress. She was their guest. They were inspired by her. On Courtney's lapel was a green pin that said E-R-A, yes. That's the Equal Rights Amendment. The bill was proposed 48 years ago, and it's still only been ratified by 38 states. It's an amendment to the Constitution that affirms equal rights regardless of sex. 
To me, this is just another reminder that all progress is slow. But it's the ones who keep fighting, who can't be knocked down, that actually make change. Maybe it's because they see every small step as a big win. I think that's what it is for Courtney. I saw it up close in that bland federal courthouse a month earlier, in January. It was one of the many CVRA hearings. Lawyers for the government were arguing for why the non-prosecution agreement should be upheld. And the case is not about whether or not the Southern District of Florida had a right to make the decision that they made. And I think we all agree that they did. The issue is whether or not the office was fully transparent with Ms. Wilde um, about what it is that was going on with respect to the non-prosecution agreement. It was a hearing with hours of nuanced legal arguments in front of three federal judges. You would almost miss what this lawyer had said if you weren't listening closely. The government should have communicated in a straightforward and transparent way with Ms. Wilde. And for that, we are genuinely sorry. Four little words Courtney had been hoping to hear for so long. We are genuinely sorry. Yeah, and it snuck up on me too because this whole, you know, we've been litigating back and forth for 11 years and the basic thing that we asked for was just a simple apology and we've never gotten that um, from the government. I talked to Courtney that day, both of us still wearing our courtroom clothes. She seemed satisfied that finally someone had actually apologized. It was kind of like a sense of relief. I was just like, and I did start crying because it's just been so long. And, you know, it meant a lot for them to say that finally. I was like, wow. And um, not only did they apologize, but they said, hey, listen, this shouldn't have happened. If you or someone you know has been a victim of sexual assault or partner violence, there are resources available for you. Go to Safe Horizon, that's safehorizon.org, to learn more. Next week on Broken Seeking Justice. She's just like, oh, do you want to meet a friend of mine? He really likes blondes. And we, I pictured some trust fund kid who was our age, who was a musician who lived with his parents. You're asking me, well, what was she doing? I was like, well, she was there to serve a purpose. She was brought in to serve a purpose. The best way to describe it is literally like Alice in Wonderland. It's like falling through the rabbit hole as soon as you got in that door. Broken Seeking Justice is produced by Three Uncanny Four Productions. Our show is produced by Krista Ripple and Jennifer Siegel, with help from Jack Panyard and reporting from Emily Saul. Casey Holford composed our theme, and this episode was mixed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Parker Henry is our fact checker, and Rachel B. Doyle is our editor. Our special correspondent and executive producer is Julie K. Brown. Our other executive producers are Adam Davidson, Laura Mayer, Adam McKay, and Kevin Messick. I'm Tara Palmieri. We'll be back next week.